Amen. As you're getting your seats, just a reminder that this morning we are continuing our sermon series about, uh, entitled All In. Over the next couple weeks, we're focusing on God's love, His all-in love, and sending Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And also, in God sending His Holy Spirit so that we could follow the way of Jesus, live, uh, know the truth of Jesus, and live the life of the body of Christ. Well, many of us, I think, are schooled in the truth of Jesus, and some of us have studied the life of Jesus. Few of us, I think, have experienced the way of Jesus as a model for us to follow, as a way of living that transforms every aspect of our lives. That's the sermon series. And so today we're looking at God's electing love, calling his people for his good purposes. And so I invite you to read along with me, or follow along as I read for us. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 27. The words will be on the screen. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he, Christ, might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies of, in your minds of, because of your evil behavior. But now, he, Christ, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature in heaven and, and every creature under heaven, excuse me, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And then Paul ends with these words. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh in what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, to God's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So far, the reading of God's word. A number of years ago, on the topic of election and Christ's love in us, I watched an interview by John Oliver, who's a British comedian. He was talking with politicians in the U.S. and in Australia about gun control. And he was trying to make some clever points about gun control, which I am not at all interested in exploring today. But 
his interview strayed into a conversation about the role of elected officials, which I think was very interesting and very helpful as we think about election. And so I'm going to invite you just to watch this 30-second video, as he, and you can tell from their accents who, which is the American and which is the Aussie. But just consider their responses to the question, what makes a politician successful? What makes a politician successful? Getting reelected by uh, his or her constituents. Right. Yep. That, that, that's how you judge success. Okay. That's well, uh, getting legislation done. Is second. Is second, yes. So that is second. Holy <laughs> that is second? Uh, if I could rewind this tape, I'd say getting legislation done and get elected by your constituents. But seeing as we can't rewind the tape, let's just go with the answer you gave on instinct. If you don't get uh, re-elected, uh, you know, you're just roadkill in the political process um, and you're just another loser. Tragically, not everyone understands this. What makes a politician successful? Go. Making society a better place. No, 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 Rob, no. Look, we can, um, we can actually rewind the tape. Are we rolling? What makes a politician successful? Well, it's your responsibility to govern in the best interests of the people that you serve. Rob, Rob I, I, I mean, I'm going out on a limb here. I've already told someone else that I can't do this when I can. I hope you've got a lot of tape. What makes a politician... There we go. So we heard two answers very clearly, right? If you're elected... Is the purpose of your election to hold that seat for as long as you can? Or is it to make society a better place? To, to quote the, the Aussie politician, to govern in the best interests of the people that you serve. To be honest, I've never heard a better definition of election in my life than that second one. Not even among Christians. But if you are at all familiar with the Reformed definition of election, I encourage you to think about which you are familiar with. When, we th when you think of election, when you think of God's electing love, do you think of being called to sit in a seat as long as possible and enjoy the benefits of that position? Or do you think about being called to serve others and serve their best interests? I'm a part of River Park Church. In fact, I'm a part of the church at all because I believe that God wants to empower his church to serve and bless our world. God wants our world to see in the church a beautiful picture of what heavenly perfection and eternal life with God looks like now. God wants to see in the church, or God wants our world to see in the church what joy and peace, what harmony and flourishing look like now, today. God wants his church to be leaders in society, by which I don't mean that Christians ought to hold all important political offices. I mean that God has designed us to be the example, the paradigm of what flourishing and justice, of what love and partnership of what making room for others, what all these things look like. 
In other words, when people wonder, what should a good society look like? God's desire is that people be able to look to the church and see an answer. This is why I am compelled by River Park Church's vision. Our vision to reach out, to draw in, and to create mosaic community. We've said that we want to be the kind of community that welcomes everyone. We want to invite people to bring their whole selves and their experiences to the kingdom of God, to the family of God. To enjoy the love and honor of the family of God in a way that is life-giving for them. Why do we want this? Because Jesus did that. We've said we want to be a church that, and we want to ask our leader, or we've said that as a church, we want to ask our leaders to lead the church in the best interests of the people that we serve. Why? Because that's how Jesus led. Furthermore, we profess that the best interests of other people is not what I want or what you want. It's not even to be in relationship with me or us or do things my way or our way. That actually the best interests of others is not me or us. It's to be in relationship with the God of the universe. To experience his son Jesus Christ and the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit in any way and in every way that we can. Why would we give up our way so that others might know the Father? Because Jesus did. If this is our vision, and what a glorious vision it is, then we should be willing to go all in to pursue it, to give up everything, even our position and our power to pursue it. Why? Because Jesus did. This is Paul's text, or Paul's purpose in our text for today, that we would respond as God's chosen and elected people, that we would respond to the gift of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to repeat a few of the verses that we read earlier. Once, he says, you were alienated from God, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you as holy in his sight. That's that election piece. Holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out for you in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul not only explains what it means for Christians to be elect, he also embodies it. That we we don't just have a position that God has won for us, we have a response that is expected of us, that we become servants of the good news that we become servants or followers of Jesus. Christians, of course, pursue Jesus. That's what Christian means. Christians were first given the name Christian, meaning little Christ, somebody who's trying to, to look like Jesus. But which Jesus do we pursue? Jesus was and remains God's plan for reconciliation from the beginning. And it might sound obvious to say that Christians are pursuing Jesus. And actually, in an earlier draft of this sermon, I just said that. Oh, Christians are pursuing Jesus. Let's move on. But it's worth pausing, I think, in this series and in the sermon and wondering which Jesus we are pursuing. 
See, Scripture gives us a picture of Jesus who is one with the Father, who is full of grace and truth, who is the way, the truth, and the life in their entirety. There are many stories in Scripture that picture for us and remind us that God never reveals himself fully to us because he is so much greater in power and majesty, so much greater in wisdom and glory than we are. So that even if we went and even when we go all in to follow Jesus in every area of our lives, we couldn't take it all in. That Jesus is greater than our ability to see him. That in fact, we see only one small part. And when we say that we are following Jesus or pursuing Jesus, so often we follow him only in one part, while also carefully maintaining control say, of our finances. Or we step out in obedience for a little while, but then we go back to our old way of doing things. Or we're willing to follow Jesus, but only after we first understand all the reasons why. With a little humility, I think we can admit that as individuals, we can never say that we are fully following Jesus in part because we can only see one part of him as individuals. And so we only follow that part. And so we find this paradox at work in our lives. That if we really want to follow Jesus, we need more than our own abilities, more than our own sight, more than our own knowledge. Yet, Jesus is so much greater than we are, so far beyond us that we can never fully know him. So we need his power, his ability, his sight, but we can never fully know him, not at least as individuals. So who is this Jesus, really? The mystery of the resurrection life is that our resurrected Jesus meets us when we look for him. But where do we find him? If we can't know him fully as individuals, if we can only see him as just a part of who he is, one of the things we celebrate as a community is that God has not called us to follow Jesus just as individuals. He has given us each different talents and gifts, different passions and abilities. And then he has given us one another. So that as we gather together, we are able to see Jesus more fully. That in fact, the things about other people that perhaps most frustrate us or seem most strange to us also offer us the opportunity to see Jesus at work in our lives and in our world, in our community, in a totally different way than we expect or would be able to find out on our own. There's many logical arguments that Scripture puts forward about Christ and about Christ in us. Even our text for today says that followers of Jesus have been included in Christ. Yet even the most articulate expression of the, or explanation of the mystery of Jesus Christ will leave us unsatisfied. Why? Because God didn't design us to have all of the answers. And Scripture is clear that when we come and meet Jesus, or when Jesus comes and meets us, He will not ask for a full explanation of everything we know. 
He will simply say to some, Come, take your inheritance, my children whom I love. And to others, he will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. If you know that reference, then you know that's from Matthew chapter 25, where the, the righteous who Jesus says, Come and receive your inheritance, they respond and they say, Lord, when did, we, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or needing clothes? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you and serve you? Jesus responds, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. In other words, that we'll only ever experience Jesus and we'll only ever be satisfied, or excuse me, we'll only ever be satisfied when we see and experience Jesus, when we serve him and know our risen and resurrected Lord. Let me perhaps give you a few examples. I have experienced his quiet care every three weeks when my Kurdish barber cuts my hair. Years ago, his family fled Iraq because ISIS was down the road killing kids. Last December, he told me that because I was a pastor, he wasn't going to let me come up and preach at the Christmas service unless I got a haircut on December 23. He cares for me better than I care for myself. I felt his embrace for longer than I expected when I got to marry one of the older members of our church, an 80-something-year-old Dutch woman to an 80-something-year-old Scotsman. They fell in love at their retirement home. They had both lost a spouse over a decade ago and they were and are amazed, even giddy, to have fallen in love again. She hugged me after their wedding and said quietly, thank you for this. I am so happy now. I had only done a small thing, but he rejoiced over me. I locked eyes with him for a moment when my Russian climbing partner and I fist bumped after we both solved a difficult bouldering problem at the climbing gym. He did it first. He showed me the way to do it. Just as he shared first about his current pain, facing evil in the country and among the people that he loves. Only then was I able to share about my current pain and the evils of my tribe. He invited me to enter into my grief because he willingly remained in his I heard him bellow with laughter across the room as he playfully teased my wife about some piece of art drawn by a child magneted up on our fridge. We'd invited a few people over to share our brokenness and longings with them, to wonder about forming a kind of spiritual family together. He knew what was coming. And he filled our home with deep joy. I flushed with embarrassment when he bent down to tie my, both of my shoelaces. I had walked into our church hastily after a busy morning where everything had gone wrong and I was late. And then a staff member at our church, a wonderful Greek mother who many of you know, came over, heard me enter the building, immediately bent down 
and tied both of my shoes so that I wouldn't fall or trip on my way to my office. His care for me overwhelms me. C.S. Lewis writes in his letters to Malcolm, we may ignore that we can never or nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. Authors who are less verbose and even less insightful than Charles Taylor, a philosophy professor at the University of Toronto, many authors have detailed Western culture's trajectories toward an inescapably imminent frame. A frame of reference, in other words, in which the only reality that counts is what can be measured and touched and repeated. And in all the frames above, and there are many more, what very simply happened was that the person was present. They interacted with me as himself or herself. There was no flash of light. There was no visible glow. We went our separate ways. But Paul says that the mystery of Christ in us has been uncovered in these last days. But in our age, we have covered over it again. Covered over the mystery that Christ is in his people. That there is more beyond our imminent frame than what we can see. That there is mystery still. As people, we are compulsively drawn to mystery. Not to solve it. This is what ruins magic tricks. When you see something amazing and then you have to look behind the curtain, as it were. We don't ultimately want to solve mysteries. We want to experience them. To reference an Old Testament story, if we were to look into the radiant face of Moses after he came down from meeting with God, Would we wonder what material his veil was made from? No. Yet this is our reality. That Jesus Christ is in us. That Jesus waits just behind the veil. Just behind the imminent frame. Which we have set up for ourselves as a blinder or a limit. The furthest that we can reach. The last star that we can see. Yet still we are drawn to a mystery who waits just beyond and just behind. A little further up, a little further in. We are not asked to explain it. We are invited to encounter him. After all, Reformed Christians have always said that God loved us first. That he reached out first. That his reach is longer and his sight is deeper. That his insight is sharper. We don't celebrate our achievements or our abilities as Christians. We celebrate God's electing love. In the last year and a half almost here in Calgary, I've been looking for him. Looking for Jesus. He has held me met me, surprised me, laughed with me, comforted me, strengthened me, cared for me, and cried over me. 
It only took me the time to see that it was really him. His face is so brilliant, so radiant, so multifaceted. Even now, I can't fully describe it. You see, the real Jesus is just beyond, just beyond, or excuse me, the real Jesus is beyond us, but he is for us. He is within us, but he is not limited by us. We cannot fully know him as individuals. We can only see him more fully as a community of diverse people. Why? Because we've all received such different yet equally incredible gifts and talents and passions from him. So have you seen him? Have you looked for his gifts and talents and passions in others? Been able to point them out and point him out? Do you know and celebrate all that you have experienced and received from him? And what will you do in response? When we truly encounter Jesus, we are stirred to return his gifts to us, to try to deepen our relationship. If we don't respond with love, if we aren't drawn deeper into relationship with Jesus and with Christ in people who are both similar to us and different from us, then we need to wonder, have we really met Jesus? Have we really seen him? Have we really experienced and received his love? We're not called Christians because we have arrived somewhere and have seats waiting on a train taking us to heaven. We are called Christians because we are in the process of being made more and more like Jesus, of continuing to pursue him everywhere we see him, everywhere he goes. And so we must continue to look for him. I can say this so confidently because Paul was confident. Again, in our text for this morning, he says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. The fullness of God in Christ that we can't apprehend or comprehend by ourselves. And through Christ, to reconcile to himself, to God, all things whether things in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The fullness of Christ, or excuse me, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. As I said, it's not a fullness that we can comprehend or know by ourselves. But Paul says it is a fullness that brings reconciliation and that brings peace. And so as we close this morning, I just want to meditate for just a moment or two on those two words, Medi- uh, Reconciliation and peace. We know from our personal experiences that reconciliation and peace are not one-sided events. They come only through partnership, only through relationship. The war in Ukraine as a big world example and the wars and the battles that go on in our own homes remind us that reconciliation and peace do not come when only one party is working for it. Reconciliation and peace require that all of us go all in. Because of last week's sermon, three different people came up to me and asked, 
What does it mean to meet Jesus personally, not in the abstract? Jesus himself offers the answer. And again, in Matthew 25, he says, Whatever you do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. When we serve other people, when we lead by making room for the best interests of others rather than working for ourselves, when we are serving and encountering others, then we are serving and encountering Christ in them. Then we are working for reconciliation and peace. God has elected us. He's elected his people and empowered us to work with him for reconciliation and peace. And he's assured us that only Christ can bring reconciliation, that only Christ can bring peace. But it's not Jesus Christ in the abstract, it's Jesus Christ in us and in others. And so as we close, I invite you just to close your eyes for a moment and imagine the rest of your day, what's coming. I know some of you have winter tires that you still need to change out. Maybe you're going to stop by the grocery store on the way home. Maybe you've got lunch or dinner planned with somebody. As you imagine the next few hours, even just the next few hours of your day, what would happen if you approached that time with curiosity and asked, how will I see Jesus in the next person I encounter? And how will I respond to her It's our Reformed heritage that reminds us that we love because Jesus first loved us. Our good theology prepares our hearts to see God at work in others and in us. That God is already at work filling us with himself and working for his good purposes. The world is crowded with God's presence. Jesus walks everywhere incognito. It's one of the joys of my ministry and my work to be able to see Jesus at work and see the love of Christ at work in someone else often before they even see it in themselves. When we encounter Jesus in other people, we can't help but want to return to them, to love them, to serve them, to give up everything for them because it's the joy of our hearts to be with Jesus. And we see him in other people. In serving others. In making room for them. In knowing them. And in in accommodating to new ways. We simply move from joy to joy. Because every interaction is another opportunity to see our Savior. To see more of him. The gospel we have received includes a response. We must remain established, Paul says, and firm, not turning back from the hope that we have, but this not out of law, but out of love. Why? Because Jesus did. His last words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus went all in. Will we follow him? Will we go all in? Let's pray. Father God, we long to be people who follow the example 
of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We long to be people who say, as Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands we commit everything. But God, give us the wisdom, the patience, and the humility, not just to say the words, but to live the words. Help us to have eyes to see just beyond our imminent frame, just behind the veil, to see you at work, even in us, broken as we are, and also in others. Help us to celebrate how you are leading, to celebrate your electing love and bringing us together as a, diff- as a diverse community of so many different people. And give us the joy that always comes when we meet you. The joy that fills us to overflowing and sustains us and draws us even closer in. Father, we are excited and eager to go further up and further in. To see you and meet you in our world. Knowing that everywhere you walk, even if incognito. Help us to see you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.